Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Mvemba Pezo Dizolele. I'm a senior fellow and the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This is a podcast where we talk everything Africa, politics, economics, security, and culture. Welcome. Africa's role in global affairs is one that has generated great debate. Some analysts have called Africa the new frontier. Others say it is the continent of the future. Either way, one wonders whose new frontier and whose future. Africa is crucial and critical in addressing the pressing issues that worry world powers and affect international affairs. Resources, demographics, climate change, and global health challenges cannot be addressed successfully without Africa's input and contribution. Its enormous potential notwithstanding, Africa faces serious challenges that warrant real commitment from its leaders and their partners. Forecasts from the Institute for Security Studies indicate that, on its current development trajectory, the growing divergence between Africa and the rest of the world on broad measures, such as average gross domestic product per capita, is likely to increase. Things are improving in Africa, but they are doing so more slowly than elsewhere, with obvious country-to-country variations. Four recent successive shocks have accelerated that trend, namely the impact of the 2008-2009 global financial crisis, the COVID-19 pandemic, the impact of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and the deteriorating relations between China and the West. Today, given the impact of climate change, the world is entering uncharted territory. Joining me today on Into Africa to discuss where and how Africa fits in the world is Yaki Silier. Yaki Silier is the founder, chairman of the board and head of African Futures and Innovation at the Institute for Security Studies, which is headquartered in Johannesburg, South Africa. Greetings, Yaki, and welcome to Into Africa. Vema, thanks very much. Our head office is actually in Pretoria, I should say, but we're close to Johannesburg. Oh, fantastic. My apologies. I stand corrected. I I think, you know, from outside, we think everything is based in Joburg, of course. (laughs) So Pretoria. Okay. So you still call it Pretoria. I understand there've been some name changes as well. No, it's Tuane is the metropolitan area. And within Swane is the city of Pretoria. So both are in actual fact correct. Okay, fantastic. Every day we learn something new. So ISS does tremendous work. You cover pretty much every topic that is of import to Africa, but also to the world as people seek to understand the developments in Africa. You run this program called Africa's Futures and Innovation. And your new report is called Africa in the World. What is this report about and where exactly Africa stands in the world? Mema, thanks for the invitation. So Africa, we've spent a lot of time looking at the long-term future of Africa. In actual fact, as you indicated, I was the founder and the executive director of the Institute for many years. I stepped down in 2015. But the thing that really frustrated me is that I used to work in peace and security. It's like the movie Groundhog Day. Every day, it's the same story. It's a new peacekeeping mission. It's more instability. And yet the gap between, for example, GDP per capita in Africa and the rest of the world has been widening since independence. There are a lot of countries that do very well, but many countries struggle. So I asked myself, what needs to change? 
And that's when I started uh, really working in partnership with the University of Denver. And we use their forecasting model known as IFS. IFS means international futures. And what we've been doing is we have been modeling the impact of different sectors, sectoral changes on the long-term future of Africa. So, for example, we look at what is the impact of an agricultural revolution on every African country? What is the impact of a leapfrogging on every African country, on better provision of health and wash infrastructure, on a manufacturing transition, and so on and so forth. And we model 12 scenarios for every African country. And we've, uh, on the 22nd of June, we launched a website. Actually, in fact, uh, President Ramaphosa was kind enough to speak at that launch, where we looked at the long-term future of every African country in 12 scenarios. And looked at what is required to change that relatively dismal forecast that you started out with. The things are improving in Africa, but more slowly than anywhere else. You need to change the structure of the African economy. It needs to become more productive. And uh, we've done that by doing an extensive amount of work. And the website, which is now up, has uh, over 4,000 charts on it. And looking at modeling these interventions for each of Africa's 54 countries, the eight regional economic communities, it's various regions, country income groups, and and so on and so forth. So it really is in response to this widening gap between averages in Africa. And it's not like things on the continent are not improving. They are with large country-to-country divergences. But things need to change if Africa is to really start catching up with averages in the rest of the world. Thank you very much for that background there on the report. So one of the questions that you ask in the report is, is Africa a pawn or a player? Yes. So let me first say a word about the report. So the most recent addition that we've made to this website is we look at the international context within which Africa will develop. And we look at four global scenarios. We look at a sustainable world, a divided world a world at war, and a growth world. And we ask ourselves the question, having uh, modeled these 12 sectors per country, we think that those sectors are only possible really in the so-called sustainable world. In actual fact, what is the cap that the developments in the international community place on Africa's development? Africa will grow more slowly in the divided world. It will go backward in the world at war. And Africa may grow rapidly in a growth world, but that will be a unsustainable growth from a carbon emissions point of view. So we start the analysis by looking at, we use various indices of power and influence, mostly developed at the party center and Denver University, to measure the portion of global power that countries have. We look at the power transition between the U.S. and China, We look at the power transition between China and Russia and others and the West. And if we model that, we see that Africa's agency, its portion of global power is quite small. Africa is 3% of the global economy at the moment. Its power is about 5% of global power to the extent that one can measure this. And we ask ourselves what needs to happen to change Africa's agency. And the short answer to that largely, and you don't need to do a lot of waddling to see that, is Africa needs to speak with a common voice. It must make sure that it doesn't choose sides and get played in this war between the West and Russia and the hostility with China. And uh, it needs to decide what are the issues that are important for us from a developmental perspective and choose our battles on that basis. 
that makes us a player. That means we, we will get played to a lesser extent than is the case at the moment. Long answer, I'm sorry. No, that's very good. Very uh, comprehensive there. I'm curious then, though, you say it makes us a player, but if Africa is only contributing 3% the global economy and then 5% of global power, how are they a player, not a pawn? Well, on the one side, let me take both a negative and a positive. The negative is, do we think that it is possible that Europe can coexist with an Africa that has, I think, 12% of the GDP per capita of Europe? Do we think that that is not only morally, but practically, is that feasible? A continent that is going to suffer more from climate change and all of these issues than almost any other with a lifespan, average life expectancy that is something like 15 years below the average in Europe. That's the negative. The positive is that Africa has got 55 member states, the Africa Union. And if anybody wants to change the global environment and want to reform the Security Council or whatever, it needs Africa. We are the market of the future. We are also the area that probably is the domain of all the minerals for the fourth industrial revolution and so on and so forth. Company returns in Africa are higher than they are anywhere else in the world. Yet we are punished by the rating agencies to an extent that just absolutely is almost criminal. And of course, the difference is that views in, in Europe and, and North America are so negative on Africa. And the difference, of course, is Chinese views on Africa are not that negative. China already produces a significant portion of Africa's manufacturing output. They invest on the continent. Of course, the dynamics are different. But Africa can become more of a player, but we must not have unrealistic expectations about Africa's place in the world and how we can achieve that greater agency. So let's go back to this concept. It's a fascinating concept of Africa's place in the world. You have laid out a few indicators, a few factors that frame where we are. But I want to go back to the leapfrogging, the low manufacturing penetration. You have not mentioned education and human skills, human capital. Can you talk a little bit about how those provide both challenges, but also present opportunities? So we have modeled uh, 12 scenarios for every African country. Africa consists of 23 low-income countries, 23 low-middle-income countries, seven upper-middle-income countries, and one high-income country. That was actually, in fact, last year's World Bank classification. For low-income countries, the sectors that have the largest potential for growth in the next 10 years is the agricultural sector. The same is for low-middle-income countries. For upper-middle-income countries, it is the implementation of the continental free trade area. That's if you look over the next 10 years. If you look longer term, for all of Africa, the full implementation of the continental free trade area can deliver more return in GDP per capita growth than any other sector. So for upper middle income countries, a manufacturing transition is the second most important. Okay, low end manufacturing, no rich country has become rich without undergoing a manufacturing transition. Very important for Africa. The third most important very often in most countries is the potential that leapfrogging has. So in our language, leapfrogging consists of more investment in ICT, renewable energy sources and provision of household electricity. And then the contribution that these two can make to the more rapid formalization of the informal sector. So that is what we consider to constitute leapfrogging. So in another way of, of making this point is that the ability to leapfrog depends on 
you having household electricity and internet access. Without those two, you cannot leapfrog in areas like education uh, and even in agriculture. When we look at uh, particularly Africa's 46 low, low and middle income countries, the provision of household electricity and internet access allows you to unlock other opportunities more rapidly. We model, for example, the impact of education. But education is a generational challenge. Africa has the lowest levels of education and the poorest quality of education of any region in the world. Changing that will require a change in the way that education is provided on the continent, leapfrogging. It requires internet access. It requires a different way of providing education. And even then, it will take a long, long time, which is why I make the point that ways of accelerating Africa's transition requires fundamentally household electricity access, internet access, and then you can unlock many of your other enablers. So that's, in a sense, a bottom-up look. I've also made the point, when you look at which of these 12 sectors that we have modeled over the long term provides the most return on incomes, it is the full implementation of the African continental free trade area, which is why it is so important. And that makes absolute sense. Our markets are not big enough, either for local companies or for international companies to sell in. And the implementation of the continental free trade area will change the nature of our exports. We go up the value curve and so on and so forth. So you ask a complicated question, but I'm trying to give you an idea of what is fundamental to the transition in Africa. On those, I want to go back to a couple of things you mentioned earlier, because they all seem to be connected. One, you talked about Africa speaking with a common voice. 54 countries, African continental free trade area. How possible is that? Where is the gap between the aspiration and the reality, given everything that you've explained? The continental free trade area is a hugely ambitious undertaking. We know that. But even if we can make progress at the sub-regional level, ECOWAS, ECAS, SADC, and so on, we will make progress. Because I think, as you know, the timeline for the full implementation is 2033. To get all of Africa's uh, 55 countries to uh, succeed in that is hugely ambitious. And we haven't even spoken about a region such as North Africa, which has 5% of its trade is with other countries in North Africa. It is the least regionally integrated region in the world. And how do we get over the issue around Algeria and Morocco on Western Sahara? I mean, there are huge challenges in terms of the full implementation of the continental free trade area. But we are saying that is the the one strategy that can deliver the largest return. I am concerned that if we will be able to make the kind of progress that the Secretariat thinks we are going to make, but that will require a different level of commitment to what we've seen from a number of African countries and leaders over the last few decades. I don't think one must be sanguine about the challenges that lie ahead. For example, the implementation of the continental free trade area, they are massive and we are sure to encounter any number of obstacles in the years that lie ahead. But these processes take time. They are inevitably slow. Look how long it's taken Europe and other regions. We need to keep on pushing because there is, in a sense, no real alternative than to try and invest and try and move continental integration and other measures like manufacturing, agriculture, leapfrogging forward. Is it possible to get there with the current configuration of the African Union? Because that's the closest thing that exists to the continental free trade area. In other words, 
This was an attempt at speaking with one voice. Since 1963, the organization has gone through a lot of ups and downs and actually reconfiguration with the creation of the African Union. There were a lot of initiatives like NEPAD and others. That has not worked very well, if we were to be frank. That one voice, and we're not talking about differences between one country, X, one country. The European Union is not the most united organization either. But they have a set of principles and indicators and obligation that they all try to adhere by. They also have countries that are leaders in, in Europe. So we're talking about Germany, France, who kind of shepherd everybody around and herds all the cats. And so we're moving forward. That doesn't seem to exist with the African Union, which is kind of the ultimate common voice platform. What is your assessment of that within the context of your report here? So I think in part you've given your uh, an answer to the question that you've asked. I spent many years working with the OAU and the Africa Union in Addis Ababa on various issues around peace and security. I knew the organization very well when I worked with it. It's changed a lot. But the only time that we've seen real progress with the Africa Union is when a collection of African leaders of the largest countries, the so-called NEPAD, original heads of state and government implementation committee of NEPAD, got together and drove the future of the continent. That was Mbeki, uh, Obasanyo, Bouteflika, and so on. That is no longer exists. That coterie of leaders that take the continent to get forward. And I think that that is really where we need to go. The Africa Union is an intergovernmental secretariat. It does not have the powers, for example, of the EU Commission. And the comparisons that are often made between the EU Commission and the Africa Union Commission, the only thing they have in common is their name. They have very different powers and so on. So on its current configuration and under current leadership, I share your concerns about the ability. At the same time, I don't think we have previously seen the kind of commitment we've seen with the implementation of the continental free trade area. We've seen quite rapid progress. I think a long road lies ahead on that. So that's sort of one way of moving. The other thing that I think is important is that without significant economic and political integration, which is decades away, I don't think it's really reasonable to speak of a common voice on a, on a host of issues. There are certain key developmental things that Africa needs to take a common position. One example would be on common standards for, let's call it infrastructure projects, on issues around transparency of contracts, issues around uh, due diligence and compliance. If we can find a way, and I'm sure our partners internationally can help us with this, if we can find ways of establishing frameworks that allow those things to happen. We can, in a sense, leave the politics out of the future of the Africa Union. Of course, you can't leave politics out. <laughs> but I mean, um, <laughs> yeah. But I think that uh, there are many, many technical issues that would unlock Africa's development potential. Let's take the issue of the transparency of investment decisions and so on, which I think could go a long way and where it is possible to achieve progress and to move the continent forward. Within that vein, then, will it be important, considering the challenge of the African Union, will it be important maybe to start back at the fundamentals and focus on regional economic communities, such as SADC, the Southern African Development Community, uh, EAC now, the East Africa Community, ECOWAS, and so on, and maybe build those principles that you were just talking about, those dynamics at the regional level, 
And then it will be easier to integrate those regions than it's been the way that the continent is going about it. What's the possibility of that? I think that is a huge requirement because what we find is we find that African leaders very often join regional economic communities for political and not economic reasons. You mentioned the East African community. Just look at the membership and the overlapping membership of a country like Tanzania or the overlapping membership of a country like the DRC. So uh, I think what we need to do is we need to, in a sense, rationalize the membership of regional economic communities. We need to with all due respect, get rid of structures like Sensad. What is Sensad? The Gaddafi creation. Oh, okay. It was basically Central Sahel Africa that came together and he, you know, put a lot of oil money behind that. And of course, it serves no purpose, but it is one of the eight regional economic communities recognized by the Africa Union. Those kind of anomalies, I think we need to get together to sort out. We need to get ECAS working. We need to get the Arab Maghreb Union working. And then, as I've said, we need to rationalize the membership of many of the regional economic communities so that we can get rid of the overlapping issues. But I think you put your finger on a key requirement that can be resolved with political will and leadership. You know, we saw that in Europe. I mean, you were talking about the resemblance or the similarities just sticking to the name. And sometimes I wonder if that is not a problem for Africa. There is too much cutting and pasting. You know, Europe is 26 or so countries, easy to manage. They still have a lot of the issues, still challenge. We talk about 54 countries, as diverse and disparate as the entire world is. I mean, you take South Africa, you compare it to Morocco, just the distance is like two different worlds altogether. And yet we continue building these commissions and these titles, which also Africans have not been able to fund themselves. You talked about the rating earlier being punished by rating agencies overseas. How else would they rate us? Well, I think the one thing that we can do is we do an independent uh, comparison between the ratings of a number of African countries, Ghana is one that's often mentioned, and South American countries. You find that Africa gets punitive and pays punitive interest rates. But I want to get uh, back to something that you just mentioned about our ambition. I, I often think we're our own worst enemy. You know, we set ambitions for ourselves which are patently impossible. Let's take silencing the guns by 2020. I think we agreed to that in 2018 or something like 2017 maybe. And then we, of course, have to move it till 2030. And then there's no wonder that countries and that we don't have confidence in ourselves and our ambitions because we set ambitions. Another example would be the establishment of a pan-African parliament without any powers, without any legislative purpose. But yes, we establish it and we run it lots of money behind it. So I think that we need to be modest in what we want to achieve, and then we should achieve it rather than these lofty ambitions where we expand the paper mandate of, for example, the AU Commission, but the, the basics, the fundamentals, the composition of the regional economic communities, many of the technical aspects, we are not prepared to move forward on. In actual fact, one of the scenarios that we model in the growth world that I refer to is we say that North Africa links up with the European Union. The Horn of Africa links up with the Persian Gulf. West Africa links up with uh, trade agreements with North America. Central, Southern and East Africa links up largely with China. It is where Africa steps away from the ambition of continental integration. And in actual fact, the continent links up with other regions. And that is an alternative growth concept. It may not be pan-African. It may be politically incorrect. But if one looks, for example, at the future of North Africa, you can ask yourself, You've got this big highway known as the Mediterranean Sea, which is a nice transport, and you've got the Sahara to the south. You know, from a, an economic perspective, 
One can make the argument that finding ways to create synergies between North Africa and the European Union may provide North Africa, particularly today in today's energy world, with all the potential renewables that North Africa has, with tremendous developmental opportunities looking to Europe. So there are different ways also, I think, of looking at the future of Africa that we may think at the moment are not realistic, but over time that may actually uh, really provide a different way of looking at the future of Africa. You talked about overlapping membership, regional membership. Do you look at it as a problem or do you see it as an advantage? I think it's largely a problem because I think I look at the way in which the membership changes literally from one uh, year to the next. You mentioned the DRC in the East African community and there are many examples that one can use. I generally think what we need is we need to step away from the current regional economic communities or we need to rationalize their membership. Now that's easier said than done. But I think that we are not serious about regional integration in Africa. And we need to see the regional economic communities really as building blocks towards the African continental free trade area. And that would mean that countries that form a geographic and economic region, that needs to be the core of every regional economic community, rather than political considerations or the whim of a particular leader when he or her feels that he is in conflict with another country and wants to shift his country's uh, membership. And that is a problem because the political considerations often override any other consideration. But also I love this joining or adhesion to these regional organizations are not put to a referendum, for instance. The peoples of those countries are not committed to those communities in the way that the leaders are for the set of reasons that you just mentioned. So how exactly do you see the world we are in today? And if we can narrow it down, and where is Africa in that world? Because all the scenarios you talked about, sustainable, divided, that growth, at war, I'm not sure I understand exactly what the parameters were for that, those definitions. Okay, so we, we came up with the four different worlds based on two dimensions. The one dimension is the extent of global fracturing, whether you have sort of nationalist populism as you have in the United States in much of Europe, or you have a sort of move towards a rules-based world or globalization in the traditional sense of the word. And the other axis or dimension we use is the extent to which the international community, the world, is prepared to invest in a sustainable world. Those two dimensions, the extent of factionalism and sustainability, gives you these four worlds that I refer to. Sustainable world, divided world, world at war, and growth world. We are at the current probably in the headed towards a divided world. A divided world is a fragmented global order where we there's a retreat from the rules-based system. This is where somebody like Trump is elected in 2024 and the European Union and the US is don't pull in the same direction. Uh, this is a world where the UN Security Council continues to be delegitimized and loses influence, where nuclear proliferation carries on where the world is divided between sort of the G7, the BRICS, and efforts at an unaligned grouping. There is weak mitigation and adaptation. Xenophobia and anti-migrant sentiment is evident, particularly in Europe, but also, I should say, in countries like South Africa. So I think that's the kind of trajectory that we are on. And the question is, how do we get to a sustainable world? What needs to change? And our analysis says that the most important thing at a global level that must happen is that the relationship between China and the West needs to be reset. At the moment, what concerns us 
is that Russia and China are increasingly put in the same boat and they are increasingly packaged together as sort of enemies of the West. And the reality for Africa is that China is probably, and Asia is probably the most important region for our development. It is the only region that invests in Africa, that builds infrastructure. It's our largest trading partner. Chinese come and manufacture on the continent for Africans and so on and so forth. But we don't only need China. We need the West. We need US. We need Europe. And we need to find a way that we don't become a victim of this global fight that seems to be emerging. Nobody can win from that fight. China is not going to step away from its approach to its domestic governance or to its global future, nor is the West. So thinking that somehow this issue can be dealt with in an increasingly confrontational, uh, the Chinese are bad and we are good, it's not going to work. So that issue really concerns us, this drift towards polarization, because Africa will suffer. And Africa needs the West, it needs Europe, it needs the US, and it needs China. All the issues that you've described, especially this scenario, looks like we are dealing with a little bit of this and a little bit of that, like various portions of various scenarios. Because the sustainable world that you described last there seems to be the ideal world, I think, to our aspirational world. But what I want to ask you, this has been a very rich conversation, at least for me, and I suppose for our audience, just getting the various perspectives that you laid out. In every scenario, in every case, there is always a gap between the reality and the perception. In the case of Africa, as you looked at its place in the world, where is the gap between perception of Africa and the reality of Africa? And how would you recommend that we close that gap? It's been reflected in our conversation. We have been speaking about Africa while we both know how diverse and large the continent is. And what has happened is that the only reporting that is made on Africa by a few Western agencies with perhaps a single person in Cape Town, because it's nice, and another person in Nairobi is a trickle of bad news that reflects the entire continent. Africa is hugely diverse. There are a few countries that face enormous problems. There are large portions of Africa, Botswana, Mauritius, Seychelles, you name it, Kenya and so on, that are doing exceptionally well. So it's the lack of knowledge. It's the lack of engagement. You know, every year, as you know, the first visit of the Chinese foreign minister is to Africa. China engages, invests in Africa. It has trade fairs. Europe, North America, mm, not really. Yes, we find a few American diplomats visit to come and sort of tell us, guys, the Chinese are bad. You really need to look at us. So I think that that lack of knowledge and engagement is the first and the most important issue that needs to be rectified in looking at our long-term future. It is understanding the diversity of Africa. People don't speak of Europe as one entity. They speak of Germany, France, the UK, and so on. And I think that that knowledge and engagement, the understanding of Africa's potential and the differences I think is, is where a lot of this needs to start. We are not only a place that requires humanitarian relief and aid. We are also the destination of the area, as I said previously, where return on investment is the highest in the world. And those kind of factors need to change. How do we unlock the American private sector to really invest and engage in Africa? Changing that perception, getting that knowledge is probably the biggest challenge in the U.S.
Yaki Silier, founder, chairman of the board, head of African Futures Innovation at the Institute for Security Studies. We thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for the invitation and for the discussion. Thank you for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends. Subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts. You can also read our analysis and report at csis.org slash Africa. So long.